And so I began looking at the book of Philippians and just going through it. And uh, I thought, you know, this really addresses just certain basic building blocks of being a Christian. But they were different, you know, maybe different than you would expect. You would think, well, the first building block is prayer or it's uh, faith, you know. But these, this, this came at us a little bit differently, and I thought it was great. First of all, first basic building block of being a Christian is that the gospel now becomes the priority in your life. The gospel becomes the priority in your life. Second thing is that Jesus' example of dying on the cross and giving himself for others now becomes the mode in which we should live, that we should lay down our lives for others. So the gospel becomes priority. We should lay down our lives for others. And then it dealt with following the, the proper example of godly leaders that God places in our lives. Imitate worthy leaders. Follow those people that God has given you that you, you've seen the Christian life exemplified in. Amen? And today Paul finishes off the book with just this exhortation to stand firm and don't be moved. It's a key building block of the Christian faith. You must stand firm and not fall back, not be moved, not be shaken, but continue. Read, read with me Philippians 4 verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Stand firm. Firm. If there's ever a time when we need this encouraging message to stand, it's right now. Just think about 2020, what we came through. We came through a global pandemic like none of us had ever seen. We came through riots in our cities and burning some cities to the ground. We came through a contentious political election probably like none of us have ever seen. I mean, it was one of the wildest political things we've ever witnessed. And look at the folks who suffered loss in the last year or two. Just, just, it's phenomenal, right? But you know what? We're still here. We're still standing. Amen? Come on, elbow your neighbor. Tell them, hey, I'm, I'm still standing. Actually, I'm seated right now, but I'm standing, you know. I'm still standing. I'm not going anywhere. So I'm going to break this passage apart in four different ways. I see really four ways that Paul tells us to stand or four key elements of standing firm in the faith. First one is found in verses 2 and 3. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Here he's talking about standing firm in unity with other believers. And I think that's the first way we stand firm. Stand in unity with other believers. So... I don't know. Scholars differ on this. Some think that there was, Paul's just giving a general exhortation, tell these women to get along and, and 
do right. But it seems to me the majority, the consensus of scholarship here, believes that there was a problem going on between these two women, that there was some sort of disagreement or argument. And I think I'm reading it from the NIV actually this morning, and I think Paul's words plead here, I think tip us off to that. He says, I'm pleading with you, Odia and Syntyche. I'm pleading with them. Get it together, man. Get it together and stop being at one another. Stop this contention, right? So what was happening here? I don't know, but, but it's possible that these two ladies were in some sort of leadership position in house churches in the city of Philippi. Let, let, let me break this down. Okay, the church in the first three centuries had no buildings. So when we think of church in the early church and in the New Testament, we're not, we're not looking at four walls, pews, and an organ. That's, that, was, that did not exist. There were no buildings for the first three centuries. Matter of fact, Anytime the church tried to erect a building, it was destroyed by the Romans. It wasn't until, you know, uh, Constantine and his conversion at the famous Milvian Bridge conversion in 313 when he, was, he saw the cross of Christ and, you know, word said, fight by this, and he's converted to Christianity, that Christianity becomes a, re- a, a legal religion. It wasn't until then could they even meet publicly, legally, or, uh, or definitely build a building. So this is a little tidbit for all you history buffs. And I know there's many of you out there. <laughs> is that the term basilica was a uh, term used in the ancient world for certain public buildings or certain structures of buildings. And when Christianity was made legal, the Christians inhabited some of the basilicas. So we take that name now, basilica. When you say basilica, you're thinking of a great church somewhere, you know. I, I know you are fascinated by that, and you're just like. <laughs> okay. Anywho, they couldn't meet publicly. So where did they meet? They met in houses. So years ago, I got to tour the uh, ruins of Ephesus, in the modern country of Turkey. But if you ever get a chance to go there, go to Ephesus. It's, it's stunning. It's one of the greatest ancient archaeological digs I've ever been on. And so when you walk in Ephesus, Ephesus, at Hooked on Phonics is working great. If you, work, if you walk down Ephesus, you'll see on the side these houses that are called the terrace houses. And so it's, they, there's these houses built up on the hillside where the wealthy would have lived. Okay, so I toured these with a New Testament scholar, a guy whose expertise is in the book of Revelation. He's lived in Turkey probably 20 plus years. He trains the national Turkish tour, tourist guides, and he's written books on the, uh, the uh, holy sites of Turkey. He's amazing. Okay, I, I met him almost 30 years ago at Regent University, and, and I show up in Turkey, and here he's the guy giving us the tour. So we walk into one of these terrace homes, and there's, a, there's like a, a, a front room, a great room, a living room that is about as large as all of this stage together, and it was beautiful. 
There were mosaics on the floor. There were paintings on the walls. It was a place where a wealthy person would have entertained the guests. And when we got in that room, he said, this is where the early church would have met. And I was like, oh, wow. And it kind of clicked. And that's why prominent women are often mentioned in the New Testament. I think they were, the, they were wealthy and they were the ones who could have hosted the churches in their great rooms. Some scholars believe that Euodia and Syntyche were connected with Lydia, the seller of purple. And they were all very wealthy and powerful in Philippi. You remember Lydia and her family is the first converts Paul had when he came to Philippi. But whatever the case may be, there was evidently some disagreement between them. There was some offense between them. And Paul is pleading that they get it together. And he calls upon another companion he had named Clement to help them. Early church fathers believed Clement, this Clement was the Clement of Rome, who became bishop of Rome, who wrote the books uh, to the Corinthians that I preached about a few months ago. So anyhow, why am I going through all this history? Because I want to. But honestly, his point is, tell these ladies to get along. Was it, a, was it offenses between different house church meetings? I don't know. But tell them to get along. And evidently it wasn't a doctrinal dispute because if it came to doctrine, Paul didn't play around with that. He said in Galatians, if somebody comes preaching another gospel than what I've preached to you, consider them anathema or cursed. It's like he was strong about right doctrine. I think what he was talking about here was just offense and disagreement. How many knows that offense and disagreement and disappointment and a bitterness that can develop because of that can cause the foundations of your faith to be shaken? It can displace you from a church. It can displace you from loving relationships you're involved in. It can mess you up. So Paul's saying, how about we get along? So I'm going to push it a little bit further. How about we drop the offenses? And how about we drop, get rid of the, the bitterness? And how about we forgive some folk? If we ever needed to hear this message, I think it's today. Because it's, it's interesting how you can't even watch news anymore and get an unbiased opinion, it seems, and, and, and draw a conclusion on your own. It's like we have these different segments of news that are so far with their opinion that they just fight each other. So you go to social media. And when we get to social media, everyone's making their argument and blasting it from the rooftops. And I don't know of anyone who's ever been convinced by an argument on social media. But we live in an age where we can just blast our opinions, rip people without consequence because we're not in relationship with them. I'm going to get up in your junk drawer this morning because it's already been in mine, all right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. So we we so often, you know, and and we're living in this age that that we just that, that we can't we can't get along without um, hating each other. 
What if we could live in society? Now, I'm talking broader. He's talking about church. Let me, just, let me just expand it a little bit. What if we could still walk in unity as Americans but realize we're going to disagree on some things? Let me particularize it to the church. What if we could realize that we, 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 could, we might disagree on some things, but in general, doctrinally, we come together, and we're going to love each other as believers, and we're not going to allow offenses to take us out. Unity doesn't mean we throw out truth. Because this is the push of society today. That the only way you can walk in unity with me is if you throw out your truth. I don't believe in that. I believe I need to fight for my truth. But that doesn't mean I can't love you and can't get along with you and can't live without offense against you. But I still believe what God has revealed to me to believe. Unity also doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we have to do every single thing like each other. For example, I was with my brothers and sisters yesterday. There are 170 of us ministers that make up one small conference. There's about 64 churches in that conference. And I love these guys and these gals. And some of them do church a little bit differently than we do. But you know what? I love them and I love the different expressions. And it doesn't mean that, that we can't get along. It's just learning how to get along and love each other and appreciate each other. Does anybody hear what I'm saying? You know what does, what is a problem though, is when we allow the disunity and the offense to come in and it will absolutely quench the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church. I could preach a sermon on how to kill revival in a church. And here's how you do it. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How many can raise your hand and say, I don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Three of y'all. How many of y'all can lift your hand and say, Pastor, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit in my life. Okay, here's how you do it. He gives us the clue in the next two verses. Get rid of all bitterness and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in Christ God forgave you. So how do we destroy the movement of the Spirit? Have bitterness. Have offense. Have unforgiveness. Have all of this stuff built up in you and don't deal with it. And then that somehow shuts down the movement of the Spirit in your life and in the life of those you're worshiping with if you aren't careful. Years ago, a great Pentecostal preacher named Burt Clendenin. He's, he's passed away now. but He was an Assemblies of God guy who pe- preached a lot with R.W. Schambach in the day. I heard him, I used to listen to these cassette tapes. You know, a cassette was an invention years ago. (laughs) That held audio recordings that we used, you know. And uh, I had this cassette tape by Burt Clendenin years ago, and he, he talked about praying through. I think the message was called Praying Through. And he said that he showed up at a certain church to have revival. And he said he preached, just preached as hard as he could and prayed, and nothing happened. 
And he said, finally, it came to the last night. And the Lord gave him a really hard word for the church. So he said, I told my wife, pull the car around to the side. So after I finish, I can make a quick getaway. And he preached, and he said he's just got so in their stuff that he turned around, and the pastor had, had laid out on the floor and crawled up under the, you know, the throne chair we used to have. And then he said, two men on the front row, one on this side and one on this side, stood up, came and met each other in the middle of the altar area and hugged each other. He said the place erupted and Holy Ghost revival broke out. What had happened is those two men had had an offense against each other for years. But they still kept coming to church. And everyone on this side was for this brother. And everyone on this side was for this brother. And when they got up and forgave each other, it cracked that thing in their church, and God sent blessing and revival to their church. Oh, can somebody shout amen? Come on, to say, get rid of it all. Get rid of it all. Walk in unity. Walk in fellowship. Paul knew the church would not stand. They wouldn't make it if they couldn't get along and deal with their issues. The second thing he talks about, and, and this is one paragraph, but it's three separate concepts, and I hate doing this, but I'm going to bundle them into one statement because it's all dealt with in one paragraph. Second thing he says do is be joyful, gentle, and not anxious. And I think those three are connected logically in this paragraph, okay? First of all, he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, it's a command. If you're going to stand firm, there has to be some joy in your Christian experience. You have to be joyful along the journey. If you've been saved, you have something to be happy about. And that joy is going to enable you to stand through the difficult times. Hallelujah. 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 How many times did me and my family face battles? And, you know, maybe a difficult situation. And my wife would come to me and she said, you know what I'm going to do, Hans? I'm going to laugh. And I found something out. You may, maybe if there's psychiatrists in here, you may think we're all crazy. But... I found something out that you can laugh by an act of your will. I know that's unnatural because we only see laughing as a response to something funny, right? But you can actually laugh as an act of your will. So Jackie would be like, I'm going to laugh. <laughs> and as she would start this, we would really start laughing. I don't know if it was just so stupid or if the Holy Ghost got a hold of us. Some of y'all need to do this. I can feel it right now. You, you, you hit a rough time. It's like the plumbing blows up and the shingles blow off and the cat's lost. 
and somebody didn't trim the bushes appropriately, and, and you're the type of person that you're about to lose your mind over that stuff, you need to just say, ah, <laughs> and you just need to start laughing until the Holy Spirit comes and takes a hold of you. Somebody says we shouldn't dance in church until the Holy Ghost hits us. No, I believe I can dance until the Holy Ghost hits. You, you shouldn't clap your hands until the Spirit hits you. No, I'm going to clap my hands until the Spirit hits me. You shouldn't raise your hands in church. No, I'm going to raise my hands until the Holy Ghost comes. I'm going to step out on faith and do it until the feelings follow faith. So I was in my office years ago. I was pastoring a church in Chesapeake, and, and I don't know, it, it, was, it was back in that, that Toronto Vineyard time, you know. I, some of y'all remember that. And I was listening to a cassette tape of the Vineyard worship stuff. And I was in my office alone, and I was the only one in the church. And I'm telling you, the Spirit of the Lord got on me, and I started laughing, and I couldn't control it. And I, the thought crossed my mind, if someone walks in right now, they're going to think I'm crazy, man. A couple years ago, Ted Shuttlesworth came, and one night he stepped in this sanctuary, and he said, tonight's about joy. We're going to release joy in here tonight. And, and I remember us seeing a, a cloud of glory, like smoke, and it wasn't the, the machines. <laughs> it was like smoke coming into the place, and Ted turns around and prays for me, and I fall out on the platform laughing uncontrollably. And it was awesome. I didn't have to be driven home, but I have been in meetings where I, I got drunk in the Spirit and had to have a designated driver drive me home. Hey, listen, you know you've had church when you've had a designated driver drive you home. And then the next morning I got up and I didn't have a hangover. And I didn't worry about who I'd wrong or what I'd done. I got up the next morning wanting more of the power of God and ready to party again. Come on. Somebody give him a praise. I just released joy over this crowd in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Come on, from one end to the other, I just declare joy over your life. The sadness goes away right now. A new season's coming to you in the name of Jesus. A season of freedom, a season of joy, a season of laughter. Oh, hallelujah, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I feel it right now. Hallelujah. Just lift your hands and just give him a praise. Just go ahead and laugh at the devil. Hallelujah. Come on, just go ahead and laugh at the devil. He tried to take you out, but you're sitting here this morning. People talked about you, but you still came back to church anyhow. Oh, hallelujah. You got down to zero at the bank account, but you still got up and went to work and still got them kids ready for school. You still pushed through and you still did what you're supposed to do. You might as well laugh right now. Rejoice always. I told myself I'm going to be calm and teach this morning. But man, how can you be calm when that joy of the Lord is just like... There's, there's a passage in the book of Luke, verse 10, or chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, 
And he sent them out to heal the sick and cast out devils. Right? They come back, and it worked. They were like, Lord, even the demons were subject to your name. Are you kidding me? And here's what the Bible says. And Luke, this is what Luke records. It says, Jesus, full of the joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. I think he was blown away that it wasn't the Pharisees and the rabbis that were out there doing all this. It was just the common folk. And so when we read that, sometimes I think we pass over it because we're conditioned to a certain view or, or a portrait of Jesus. And that Jesus is about a night, is a Jesus of Nazareth from the 1970s or the 1950 version, you know, where he's more like, it's more like a Shakespearean Jesus. But that's not the picture I get when I read this verse. The picture I get is he's overwhelmed. All of these folks come back, and the Holy Spirit is so strong on him, he goes, <laughs> Father, oh my gosh, this is too good. Even these simple folks were casting out spirits. This is awesome! Hallelujah! I don't know. He was overwhelmed with joy. So if Jesus could be overwhelmed with joy, surely we can be overwhelmed with joy. Then it flows into the next verse. Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I just somehow think these link together. And I think it's all in the next piece. But be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be gentle because the Lord is near. I believe contextually it's talking about the coming of the Lord. And Paul said Jesus is coming. And if he's coming, how would that change how you act today? So let's just say Jesus, we knew he was coming at 12.30 p.m. today. That's in 18 minutes. What would you do if you knew he was coming in 18 minutes? I, I, I think you would not be rude to people. I would think you would be kind and gentle because you're like, i got to catch up. And I think that's, that's the force that this verse has. Listen, the Lord is coming, so you better watch how you act toward people. Today, when you go out to lunch, don't be rude to that waitress. How about leaving a bigger tip because you're a blessed believer? How about being extra nice because you got Jesus in your heart? How about having a little more patience... Can I just get down there where we live? So I had something happen to my eye this week. And, and so I, had, I, I went to an optometrist. They gave me a prescription. So I went to, to a certain pharmacy. <laughs> and how many of y'all been to a pharmacy in Elizabeth City in the last week or two? Well, I got in line. And the line was wrapping around the store. And I thought, oh, no, man. And y'all don't know how I hate lines like that. And a guy walks up to me. <laughs> and he starts, he was nice, but he started complaining. I can't get my cancer medication. It's been two days. I've been calling. And I said, yeah, man, I was just talking to him. Then there's a lady in front of us. And 
her child's going wild and and then there are people getting mad. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I waited 40 minutes to get to the counter. And I said, I was supposed to pick, pick up a prescription. They looked it up. They said, we're sorry it's not ready. And we're behind. This is Friday. So I got on their text system. And I've yet to receive a text on Sunday. Thank God I wasn't in bad shape. But I, I got to the counter and you know what I did? I said, let me tell you something, lady. No, I didn't really. <laughs> I said, that's cool, man. Put me on your list. God bless you guys. They don't need me coming down on them. They need me to be a little bit of Philippians 4 or 5, a little gentle to them because I know Jesus is going to come and he's watching me. Some people, you, you think the Lord's watching you here. This is where he lives. Then once you go outside, he can't see you no more. That's not the way it works. He sees you at said pharmacy. He sees you at Walmart. He sees you when the person cuts in front of you and gives you a hand signal because they're upset at you. Third thing he says in this little paragraph. He says, And do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So, so notice how, I'd really never noticed this before. I, I could quote the verse, but I never slowed down to think about it. This do not be anxious is directly linked to prayer. It's directly tied to prayer. Do not be anxious, but with prayer. Or make your prayers and petitions known. Direct link to prayer. Okay. So, do not be anxious, be gentle, have joy, all directly hinged at the end of this paragraph to prayer. Okay. One more time. Be joyful, be gentle, don't be anxious, all directly linked to prayer. Could we be stumbling on something here? That that is when we pray, we turn over the, the ownership of our problems. When we pray, we go to someone who is actually able to take care of us. When we pray, we release all of those burdens to the Lord. And then he says, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, shall, come on, quote it with me, shall guard your hearts and minds. So the peace of God, which passes understanding, once we turn it over to him, once we make our prayers and petitions known, then peace comes rushing in and takes hold of us and envelops us and wraps us up in His arms and He takes care and, and moves out the things that, the anxieties and all the issues. So I was talking to someone recently who, who was listening to a, a professional counselor speak and they said, this counselor said, with all of my clients now, he said, we do this interview when they come in and figure out what they're complaining with. 
and 80 plus percent of them complain with anxiety. That's how bad this thing is. 80 plus percent have anxiety issues. It's a real deal. It's a real deal. So how about let's try this. Link it to prayer. Link it to petitions. And turn all of that over to the Lord. And I'm telling you, that's a discipline. That's a discipline. That's something you walk in daily. That you pray. You know, we're used to this microwave. One time prayer. And now we're so... I'm, I'm so impatient. I don't want to go two zero zero start. I just want to go two and hold it. And so it's instant. It doesn't sound like that, but it's instant. And and we've lost the art of, of every day. Every week I'm praying. I'm going to trust you every day. I'm going to trust you tomorrow and I'm going to spend some time in your presence. And I'm going to work this thing, soak in this thing until I've learned the art of trusting you and walking with you. This is good stuff, folks. The final thing he says is in verses 8 and 9. And that is the last piece of standing firm is you've got to get your mind right. You have to think the right thoughts. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true... Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've heard, learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Sometimes we think God doesn't know our thoughts, but I'm telling you, God knows your thoughts. Amen. Hebrews says, that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom, whom we must give account. David, after sinning with Bathsheba, he says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, I started thinking about it like this, that, that our mind, which is part of the soul, the mind, the will, the emotions, the mind is like a garden. It's like a fertile, it's like fertile soil in our garden. And let's just imagine it as soil that's been tilled, that's been treated, it's ready to go, it's ready for seed to put in. And then the thoughts we think are seeds that we plant in that garden. And if given time and attention, they will grow into plants and produce fruit. So if we think a negative thought, a bad and evil thought, and we don't deal with it, and we give it time and attention, it will produce an evil fruit. Right? So Jesus dealt with this in the Sermon on the Mount. He came and he said, you know, you've heard it said if you murder your brother... It's wrong, right? But I say unto you, if you have anger against your brother without cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. He said, you know, you've heard it said that adultery was wrong. It's against the Ten Commandments. But I'm telling you, if you have lust in your heart toward a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What was he getting at? He was getting to the seed form. He was getting to the seed 
which would produce the action that was evil. And you know, the, the rabbis were great at this. The Pharisees built a fence around the wall, uh, a fence around the law, supposedly, you know. So they had, a, they had a, you know, one of the laws is don't do anything on the Sabbath. You know, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So what did they do? So they invented all of these laws so they wouldn't break that law. So you couldn't, you could only travel a Sabbath day journey. You couldn't do this. You couldn't light a fire. You couldn't do like, if you ever go to modern day Israel and stay in a Jewish hotel, you'll get on an elevator in a Jewish hotel and there's a Shabbat elevator. Okay. One of the elevators is, or one of the elevators is designated Shabbat elevator. That means on the Shabbat, which is on Sabbath, they come in and an Orthodox Jew doesn't have to touch anything because it might be lighting a fire to him. So it just stops on every floor. This is building a fence around the law so I won't break the law. So they understood it. So Jesus went back to the heart. If you want to talk about the sin, let's get back to the motive or the seed that was behind the sin. So for us to stand firm, we have to start thinking the right thoughts. So let me, let me dig a little bit deeper. So if I'm running with the wrong people, hanging out in the wrong places, listening to the wrong things, it's going to be a lot easier for me to think the wrong thoughts. But if I run with good people and hang out in good places and listen to good things, it's going to be a lot easier for me to think good thoughts. I used to do this when I would teach Bible study sometime. I would have a board and I would take a, a marker and I would write a number. Let's say the number five on the board. And I would tell everyone, I said, look at this, get it in your mind, and then close your eyes. Now, try not to think five. And almost, almost no one could do it. Then I would say, okay, look at the board again. We erase the five, and I would write another number, like nine. I'd say, look at nine, put it in your mind, close your eyes. How many of you are thinking of five? And almost no one was thinking of five. Because it's very difficult to just think hard on not thinking bad things. But it's a lot easier to replace the bad thought with something good give that space of the bad to the good in your life and you'll take out the bad thoughts is anybody hearing what I'm saying take out the bad with a good thought replace it with something good replace it with something positive replace it with something holy because thoughts I thought about this this morning thoughts really become like hooks in us so Jesus said, Satan came and found nothing in me. And some have said the Greek there has a connotation of a hook, that Satan came and there was no hook in me that he could attach onto. You think he was pure righteousness. He was pure holiness. He was pure thought. He was, and so Satan came and attacked him and tempted him, but he found nothing in him. But you and I often put out the hooks. Here's an offense I won't forgive somebody. Mm, hook number one. 
There's some evil thoughts I've been thinking recently. I've really been thinking about robbing that bank. <laughs> one guy <laughs> I've been like crazy all day but one, I, I saw on Facebook so you know it's true but the, one of my friends he's a pastor and he's a really great guy and he said today I'm finally going to the bank one more time and all, I'm paying off all debts and I'm settling all these issues. As soon as I get my ski mask on, I'm going down there. <laughs> and you put out another hook. Lustful thought. Hatred against your brother or sister. We put out all these hooks. Satan comes and attaches onto that and sets up camp in our soul realm. Mind, will, emotions. Well... Somebody just think about that. That's powerful. Final thing, and I'm going to close this. The final thing I think about standing firm as Paul gives it here in the last. He says, I rejoice, verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I'm not begging for money here. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things. How many times have we quoted that verse? And I believe it's great to quote that verse, and we can expand the context and quote it for many things. I really believe that way. But if we want to look at the context strictly, what's he talking about? I can be broke, and I can have money in the bank. I can be starving, or I can have chicken and dumplings on the table. And in whatever situation I'm finding myself in, I've learned to be content, because Jesus is in my heart, and I have something that no one can take away from me on the inside. I really think that we've lost the art of contentment. And when you don't have contentment, you have discontentment, which can give in to a lot of problems and a lot of issues if you're discontent and you're constantly looking for something to fulfill the hole or the emptiness in your heart. But if you'll let Jesus be that, Let Him be all of that to you. Be everything to you. Be content in Christ. It's going to help you stand firm. You notice that that contentment doesn't mean that we don't believe God for greater things. Contentment doesn't mean we don't pray God to be debt free or have a better job. No, it doesn't mean that. Contentment means we trust in God And we're satisfied in Jesus while we look ahead to the future that we believe He has for us. It means we're content in Him and we bless Him in every circumstance knowing that even in the hard times, He's still working out a plan. He's still working out a plan for me. 
that even when I don't understand it and I'm going through difficulty, God, I know I'm content in Jesus because I know you're working something out for me. And when I see it down the road, it's going to be absolutely amazing. Can somebody shout amen? And contentment doesn't mean that I'm not believing for great things. It actually, I think, puts me in the realm of knowing when God does show up, He's going to exceed my expectations. And He's going to exceed my timetable and my limitations. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. See, some of us get so messed up even over prophetic words, and I believe in prophetic words, but yet sometimes we get so messed up because we hear a prophetic word, and then we want to interpret it on our terms and on our timetable. But we don't, we're not content enough to let it lay and let God work that word in us. Let it produce faith in us, but let God work that word in us. I had a guy come to me one time, and he said, Hans, I'm going to quit my job. I said, okay, I'm going to be a full-time evangelist. I said, do, do you have any open doors? No. Is anyone asking you to preach revival? No. But I feel the word. Well, I had a four-letter word for him. Work. I'm going to preach to this side. They're going to give me some love. Work. Until you get to open doors. Then when you have enough open doors that you can survive, then go for it, man, and have no issue. But sometimes we're afraid to be content and do what God's called us to do in the, in the, in the area we're in, you know, bloom where you're planted, when the area we're in until God opens those doors. And then we walk through the open door that He's given us. And yeah, sometimes it takes kicking and knocking, and sometimes it takes a, an extending of our faith. But I'm telling you, man, it's all due to this discontentment that we wrestle with. And discontentment can certainly cause you to be unstable. I want to see you make it. I want to see us make it. Amen. I want to see us make it. I want to see us. I want to see you stand firm. I don't want to see you get messed up. I want to see you stand firm in the faith. I don't want to see you walk out of offense for the next thirty years of your life. I don't want to see you walk over your disappointment you can't get over and you're never getting out of and it shakes you. I don't want to see you walk at odds with somebody and you can't even go down the aisle at Walmart or it's going to ruin your life. If you brush past them. Come on, let's get all that out. Let's leave all that at the altar. And once you get it out, if you have some alt with somebody, it's in their, it's in, the ball is in their court. If they want to act like a jerk, let them act like a jerk. You're free in Jesus. You've let it all go, man. Oh, hallelujah. Come on, somebody. Come on, punch your neighbor say, you're going to make it. Come on, punch your other neighbor say, you're going to make it. Turn around and tell about three other people, you're going to make it. Come on, the Lord's on our side. He's not going to let us down. He didn't bring us this far to drop us. He didn't come all the way from heaven to earth to just let us go. He didn't make it all the way to Calvary and die on the cross not to give us the help we need to make it. Come on, He's given us the tools. He's given us the understanding. He's given us the power of His Spirit. He's given us the open door to the realm of the Spirit. He's given us authority over devils and over all the demons in the earth realm so we can live a life that He wants us to live. 
so we can be firm and stand firm and not back down. Oh, hallelujah. Come on, let's stand on our feet this morning. God, you're so good. Can the church just shout a great big amen? Come on, Father, I pray for everyone in here right now. I thank you, Lord. I just pray discouragement goes. I pray discouragement goes in Jesus' name, and you encourage them. And, Lord, if, if, if we have anything in our heart that, that's become a hook, Lord, Lord, we get rid of it now. We repent right now. Come on, I pray that, that, that the Spirit of God moves on each person here and starts showing and revealing stuff that they just need to repent of, get rid of in their lives. Let it go in the name of Jesus. Come on, let it go in the name of Jesus. Let it go in the name of Thank you so much for joining us online. And I hope the message was a real blessing to you. You know, eternity is a real thing. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. According to the scriptures, you spend eternity in one of two places. First of all, heaven. Paul said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Or number two, in hell. Jesus talked about the rich man who went to hell and was in great torment. He was begging Abraham to send someone, a messenger, to tell his family. Well, listen, you're hearing the message today. Eternity is real, and you're going to spend it in one of two places. So why don't let's decide right now, me and you, that you're going to spend it in heaven. How do you do that? You accept Jesus into your heart. Open up your heart and say, Lord, come in. Cleanse me of all sin. I accept you as my Lord and take the throne of my life as yours. Okay? So let's pray right now. Just pray with me right where you are. Just repeat this. Father in heaven, I, I remove myself from the throne of my heart. And Jesus, I invite you to sit on the throne of my heart. Forgive me of all sin. Wash me in your precious blood. And I accept your sacrifice for me. And I thank you, Lord for cleansing me, for saving me, and for accepting me. In Jesus' name I pray. Can you say amen right where you're at? Hey, thank you for joining us. And please come back, get in, get in the Word, get in the flow of the Spirit. And uh, we're just blessed to have you with us and look forward to seeing you the next time.